In 2018, a body of a hiker was found. In 2020, he was finally identified. We now know of his background, but still don't have the why. Why did he enter the forest in the first place? And why was he found in the state that he was in? Still, you you just interrupted me questioning if I am mentally okay, which we all know the answer to, but why I'm questioning it. I had just been recording a video for about over six hours. Don't even get me started. Actually, actually, you should get me started. You should subscribe to my other channel because there's more true crime content out there. Yeah, Maya, you suck at self-promotion. Why do you suck at it so badly? Just promote yourself, bitch. You just told them you did all the hard work. And then you're like, don't even get me started. Anyways, as I was saying, yeah, I've done all that. And it's at this very point that I have reached the peak of my energy today. <laughs> don't understand. I've been to the gym. I've been deadbeat. Deadbeat. The worst gym experience. Then recorded for six hours. And now I'm like, you know what? Let's go. Let's go out. Let's do it. So you caught me at the right time, is what I'm saying. I'm just questioning myself, like, where, why, how? <laughs> how doesn't this organism work? That is not the point of this story. This is the month of the weird, though. So you are in the right place. The theme of the mini is really just weird. Things that have a twisteroo in them, that make you think, like, what the fuck is going on? And this is definitely one of the cases that's been in this head for quite some time. My name is Maya, by the way, this is By All Means Necessary. It is a mini-sode of a podcast that you are listening to right now. You know that. You see it on the screen or, you know, on your phone as you are dreaming yourself or doing some super active work. Where the fuck were you? That sentence was the longest thing that has ever been communicated to the public. The story I'm telling you today has been one of the internet mysteries for the longest time. And, I mean, still really is. Only part of this story has been fully resolved for the public. And some would say it's the most important part. It's about the identity of the person. And some would say we would really like to know the other part of the mystery and have that resolved. Figure out what the actual hell happened to this man? Why did he go into the forest? But when I went searching for it, I wasn't even aware that that part was resolved. I wasn't even aware that we actually know who this man was. And that is because most of the podcast episodes, most of the research on this case was done in 2019 and 2020, when we really didn't have even the answers that we have today. So, I thought, finally, let me dive into this mystery that I have been following for months on just, like, Reddit, other forums, just online. There are a couple of really good articles on Wired, two of them that you can also listen to as the audio version, which is just really helpful, so I should really credit them, because that was really also amazing journalism. So, yeah, let's dive into the story of Mostly Harmless otherwise known on the internet as the case that the internet couldn't crack, but DNA could. Okay, without that second part. Our story starts on July the 23rd, 2018, when two hikers are just on a trail in Big Cypress National Preserve. And on this trail, they found a tent. 
Around the tent, they see some food, they see a pack, they see some hiking poles. And as they open the tent, they see a sleeping bag inside, but the man inside has his eyes just wide open, as if staring at them, and is clearly dead. When the investigators from the Collier County come to the scene, they will find no cell phone, no ID cards, his possessions only included backpacking gear, some food, and about $4,000 in cash. There was also no wallet, no driver's license, no credit cards, nothing to identify him. They only found two notebooks that were filled with computer code. Two days later, an autopsy was performed, and many wouldn't really believe certain things that they would see in that autopsy report. Number one was his weight. The autopsy report stated that he only weighed 83 pounds, which would have made him markedly cachetic, basically emaciated, meaning that his muscles started wasting away as well. The medical examiner would find that his stomach was empty and the only chemicals they found in his blood were ibuprofen and some antihistamines. This man had no tattoos, nothing distinctive, no dental work done at all that would help them identify him. They only had the height and the weight. His fingerprints also weren't matching any of the police databases. And investigators could only estimate his age, and their estimation was somewhere between 30 and 50. His cause of death was stated as undetermined, but they didn't suspect that he was violently attacked or that anything really happened to him. There was only a scar that they could find that aged years ago, and they assumed it was from a surgery. So the police really couldn't understand why this guy would have just starved himself in the presence of food, in the possession of money to buy more food and to seek for help. Like, this would have been excruciating. Just when you know the food is right next to you, just starving yourself to death. And when he was found, they knew that he wasn't dead for long. They knew that it happened probably in the past couple of days. Once they checked the missing persons reports in the area, once they couldn't identify him through his fingerprints, well, they had one last attempt left. The police issued a bulletin that was seeking information from the public. And this bulletin included probably one of the creepiest composite sketches that you will see out there, saying that the man in the picture was between 35 and 50 years old, that he had the salt and pepper hair and beard, his teeth were in excellent conditions, he was 5 feet 8 and weighed just 83 pounds. They also included the description of what he was wearing when he was found in the tent. When this bulletin was released, certain hikers came to the police claiming that they actually met this man a couple of days ago on the trail, and that this man would introduce himself under different nicknames. Some would say he would introduce himself as mostly harmless. Others said that he used aliases like Ben, Bailemi, and Denim. They remembered first seeing him in the woods in the spring of 2017, that he continued from York's Harriman State Park southbound, that he interacted with dozens of hikers. Many of them have actually taken a picture of him that they are now showing to the police. 
he would tell different people different stories. He would tell some of them that he worked in Brooklyn and that he had his own company, that he was working from his own apartment. With all of the information, all of the pictures, all of the interviews that they have had with plenty of hikers, the police finally started forming a timeline. So, this is that timeline. This is what we know. What we know is that in April 2017, this man started hiking just north of New York City. To the fellow hikers, he immediately didn't give them the vibe that he was really experienced in this area. He didn't bring a phone, he didn't bring a credit card, and the rucksack that he had on his back kind of looked really huge and heavy for the trail that he was doing. And he also brought this notebook, which isn't as unusual, but it was what he was saying that he was writing in this notebook that they found kind of, well, something you wouldn't hear each day. He would be scribbling notes in that notebook about an online programming game called Scripts. But when he would be talking to hikers, he would say that he had worked in the tech industry and just needed some detox from his job, from the digital life. What these hikers didn't find as odd as I did was these trail names, these nicknames that he would give them, because apparently this is the name that people would assign to themselves as they would be deep in the woods, and it would usually be something short and easy to remember, easy to call out. So at first, Mostly Harmless started off as Denim, and that was because he started this track in jeans. Later, he never clarified this, this is just people's speculations, he turned to Mostly Harmless. And people said that this might be because of Douglas Adams' book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I haven't read this, so this is what the internet says Mostly Harmless is about in the book. Apparently, early in the series, because I think this is a trilogy or there's plenty of books on it, early, a character discovers that Earth is defined by a single word in the guide as harmless, and then they put 15 years of research and add an adverb to it and say that the Earth is now mostly harmless. Later in the story, there might be a more sinister connotation to this mostly harmless aspect of it all, so stick around. But basically, we kind of lose a track of him in this timeline. We have a gap between April and October 2017. In October, he was seen down south in Virginia, and he was seen eating at a pizza bar, staying at this woodchucks hostel, and he was there for two days because a hurricane was making it impossible for him to hike. People that remember him from this period when he was in Virginia say that they were the ones teaching him how to even light up a fire in the wilderness. So they really said he just wasn't experienced. And by this point, he was already hiking for a couple of months at least. In November, around Thanksgiving, he was staying at a hostel in Georgia, and here is where he gave the name Ben by Lemmy, and this is most probably because they weren't allowed to give their nicknames, trail names, for obvious reasons, when checking into hostels or hotels. But they also didn't ask him for the ID, or maybe they did. It's never clarified. It's not really clarified in this story. But regardless, this hostel was closed on the Thanksgiving day. So he just returned, stayed for a couple more days after Thanksgiving, and then moved on. 
before leaving this hostel and hiking center in Georgia, this is where he would buy that two-person tent that he would later be found in. On December the 1st, Mostly Harmless made it to this store in northern Georgia. And this was a store called Mountain Crossings, where a hiker named Matt Mason was working on that day. And this guy remembered Mostly Harmless asking him about how to get to Florida Keys, sort of to get a route. And Mason told him just download this app on the phone, it has all of the trail routes outlined, it would be pretty easy. And he remembered Mostly Harmless saying to him, like, he isn't traveling with a phone. And from that point on, Matt was obsessed with him. He was like, yeah, I'm gonna sell you a map, like, let me just, you know, draw on a map this pathway. Because he just found him really quirky. He found out that people nowadays don't really have that commitment where they give up everything, including their digital life. So he was super surprised and super excited about this purchase that he was making. And also when Mostly Harmless took out the money to pay $5 for this map, well, Mason saw that he had like, you know, a proper wad of cash in his pocket, in his wallet. So he asked Mostly Harmless if he can take a picture of him. He liked the customers who were a little bit different, who were a little bit strange. So, Mostly Harmless was kind of reluctant, but he still sort of smiled for the picture and then moved on. Three days after getting his map, he made it to Mountain Crossings, again in Georgia. And this is where he met another hiker. He introduced himself as Denim, and this might be the longest conversation that people would remember Mostly Harmless having. And this was because it was pretty late into the evening, and the conversation was kind of deep. Denim would confess that his dad was abusive when he was a child, that he didn't speak to his parents any longer, but he mentioned that he had a sister and mentioned that he had an ex-girlfriend. And then the topic kind of switched to like sci-fi and they talked about Doctor Who. And the next day, Mostly Harmless, as known as Denim, was gone. We lose the trail of him for the whole of December, and then on December the 29th, there was a picture of him taken south of Georgia state line. Then the next we pick up is the last week of January. And this is where he finally made it to northern Florida, and he was just walking on the side of Highway 90, when this woman called Kelly Fairbanks pulled over to say hi. Kelly was what is in the industry, I guess, known as a trail angel, which is such a cool name. And that is somebody who helps out these hikers when they pass near her, who gives them food, access to shower if they want, and just in general gives them directions if they need them. The conversation between Mostly Harmless and Kelly was pretty short, but she remembers him for a few reasons. One of them was that the gear that he had on his back kind of looked generic. It didn't look like something an experienced hiker would buy, which is yet again something that keeps popping up in this story. And another reason for her concern was actually sort of his state. Like, she looked at his face, and by that point, you know, he had kind of, like, overgrown beard and mustache, but when she looked into his eyes, he seemed a lot younger to her. And Kelly had younger brothers, so she was concerned here 
because she said the trail can be confusing. He didn't seem like an experienced hiker who would know how to maneuver it. And soon, with spring and summer coming in Florida, the weather is just going to become really hot and humid, and it didn't really seem like this man is prepared for that, because it's obviously different, you know, coming from up north during the winter time, and then coming to Florida, where it's about to get really hot on these trails. <laughs> she says, she says as if she knows what she's talking about. At least I try. I try to put myself in the story. I'm a character. I'm trailing. And I'm trying to think about it. You don't even know. You have never been to the US. You don't know even the weather in Florida. I mean, the temperature in Florida right now. You can't. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. You can't. During the rest of February and March, he was still in Florida, just different parts on the trail. People remember giving him further directions once they realized he doesn't actually have GPS and doesn't have phone on him, making sure they go into even further detail than they usually would, so that they could help him out the best that they could. And when it comes to the personal information that he would share, he again mentioned that he has a sister, and he mentioned that she is in the Fort Myers area in Florida, that he's working in the tech field, that he's having a break from that, and also that he had some health issues and needed and really wanted to have a trip while he still could. People didn't take this as eerie as it probably does sound to us now in hindsight, and they say he wasn't emaciated. He was looking thin but healthy. He was smiling. He was friendly towards everybody that he would meet. The last picture of him was taken on March the 17th, 2018, and this is where we have the biggest gap between then and July the 23rd, 2018, when these two hikers found him in his tent. Going back to the investigation and the police publishing that bulletin, Kelly Fairbanks that pulled up next to him in Florida actually was just sort of in her quiet time scrolling through Facebook as she was working at the Army and Air Force Exchange store on a Florida military base, and there she saw him, eyes wide open, because yet again, this is the eeriest sketch ever seen, and looking up, and she said she started freaking out. Kelly immediately rang the police, she told them everything that she knew, and she shared the original post and her picture all over Facebook. And suddenly, people started either ringing her or the police, all of those people that I went through through the timeline saying how and in what circumstances they have met mostly harmless. And taking everything as a whole, this is what the police had as a time. His sister that he kept mentioning was either from Sarasota or Saratoga. He checked into hostels using a fake name, Ben by Lemmy. He used another trail named Denim along the Appalachian Trail, and then when he was further down the Florida Trail, he started using Mostly Harmless. From what he was telling people, he was possibly from New York, maybe Brooklyn, but to some, he said that he was from Baton Rouge in Louisiana. 
No one mentioned that he had any particular accent they could pick up on to sort of further help them out identify where he's actually from. He had a notebook of code in his position. He worked in the tech industry, might have been a programmer, might have been a developer. He spoke about only his sister and one of his ex-girlfriends had no ID on him, no phone, and traveled without GPS, only using actual physical maps. And from everything that everybody was saying, one thing that was screaming at them was that he wasn't an experienced hiker. He wore jeans for the first couple of weeks. He didn't carry maps. He had to buy them. He didn't know how to light up a fire. Didn't carry GPS, phone didn't know of any apps that they have mentioned. He had a tent that was too big. It was for two people. He carried a backpack that was over 50 pounds that, again, would have been sort of like a family backpack for packing. So at this point, his identity is a mystery and people just started brewing up all the theories. The most popular ones were actually supported by what he was telling people. And that was that his health might have been in danger. So, you know, maybe he was terminally ill and doing something like this as like one last trip for himself. But the police could discard that theory for certain because there was nothing in his autopsy indicating anything like that. All of his organs were of normal size. There were no tumors, no wounds, nothing indicating that this man was about to die or that he was diagnosed in any way with something that would have ended his life eventually. Once this was discarded, well, then people started speculating what would motivate a man to actually disappear into the wilderness. Was he wanted? Did he just want to really run away from something? It just didn't seem like he was giving them enough of an answer with, you know, that, oh, I have a computer coding job and I just need a detox because... This detox lasted for already over a year without him really knowing what he was doing. And one main reason why I'm fascinated by this case and so many people are is because we just can't comprehend why this man would choose to kill himself by starving himself to death. It would have taken so long, it would have taken days with him only taking medication, because what that entails is, of course, denying himself water as well, while in the presence of food in his tent and around it. And just people cannot wrap their head around that part of the story, me included. Please drop your theories below, like, why would somebody go through something like this? But this is where the investigation was right now. This next part of the police investigation is mainly focusing on identifying him. And here is really where all of the internet sleuths just rejoiced. People created a Facebook group. There were Reddit threads that were analyzing the notes that he would take in those notebooks about scripts. There was a timeline constructed on websleuths.com that I have just read from, and people started speculating, matching it with age-progressive images from, like, missing persons report, matching him with the wanted posters, like, trying to see if any of those pictures would correspond with that sketch that they had. There was a woman managing a canoe company in North Carolina called Natasha Teasley, 
who took a hit during COVID. It was really quiet. So she started sending these flyers with his sketch on them to chambers of commerce in every city where people said he might be from or might have family in like Sarasota, Florida, Saratoga, New York. And when The Wire, the journalist, asked her why was she doing that, she said that he must be missed. Somebody must be missing this guy. And I'm just gonna say something that none of these articles point out to, even though plenty of women that describe seeing him do say that, you know, he had nice eyes, he was kind of attractive. Yeah, I would like to believe that this case would have happened across the board, like all of the missing hikers, regardless of how they looked. What I'm saying is that this story is partially resolved because they found him conventionally good-looking. Yeah, that's truly what nobody's really breaking to you. So I should listen. I don't know. I don't know why guys like that. <laughs> why? Please get a grip. White guys weren't what I would go for, but he is, I guess, all right looking. Because this went to the extent that a podcast was released in order to help out find him. Like, above and beyond. That's what I'm talking about. I like to think if I was to disappear, there would be this much effort, okay? Not wood, God forbid, don't fucking jinx everything in your life, anyways. So, a sheriff's office released a podcast, and this was a three-part podcast in 2020, trying to get the public interest back into this case. Because of this interest, because the internet sleuths still kept this case alive, in the summer of 2020, the sheriff's department partnered with Ofram, which was this private DNA lab in Texas, and they wanted to see if they can identify the hiker through forensic genealogy. But DNA analysis, famously, is quite expensive. This would cost around $5,000. But within eight days, the Facebook group miraculously raised this money to run this analysis. Within eight days, come on, we need to, like, we need to put this much effort to every single case, just across the board. There's no excuse. No, this case is a proof that there should not be an excuse out there. What this lab now crowdfunded had to do in really, really simple terms was to match his DNA through this forensic genealogy with really any member of his family. Because this isn't like in the olden times where they could only tell you like, yep, this person is your mother, yep, this person is your father. Now, if they find a third cousin's DNA on the system, they can still match it to you. Not just that, but they can pinpoint your area of origin. And this is what happens in Mostly Harmless's case. So, they pinpoint Assumption Parish as this area of origin where he was born. Once this was done, these sleuths, these members of the Facebook group actually purchased the Facebook targeted ads in that area to sort of distribute this information, to say, hey, this is a person that has lived here, that was born here. This effort paid off and it reached the former colleague of Mostly Harmless, who recognized him and reached out to the sheriff's office. After this, they reached out to the family, and the family agreed to provide a DNA sample for comparison. So, who is the man that we have clearly desperately been looking for? 
Well, his name is Vance John Rodriguez. He is also known as Vajor or Vajor. I'm not really sure if they're pronouncing this, you know, the Spanish way or just like the American way. He was born in February 76 near Baton Rouge, so Louisiana. He did have a sister. It was actually his twin sister, and he also had an older brother. Nobody really knew about his background and whether or not it was true what he was saying that his dad heard him when he was a child. But what we know is that when Vance was about 15 years old, he headed off into a field with a gun, intending to commit suicide. There's something creepy about this story that resonates with me, and that is the method that he wanted to do this in. And here he fired into his stomach, so, I mean, he didn't go for the conventional way. There's no nice way to say this. It just strikes me when it comes to, you know, how he actually died by starving himself to death as a really bizarre, painful, the most morbid way that he wanted to go out in. Here, as he was bleeding to death, he decided he wanted to live. So he raised his hand and a truck was passing by and pulled over. And this is where the scar that the autopsy will later find will be explained. It happened because of the surgeries on his stomach. What we know next is at the age of 17, Vance was emancipated by the court in Louisiana. And he would say to the roommate that he lived with for a couple of years in his 20s that he was quite angry with his parents because, according to him, there's no confirmation of this, the parents actually institutionalized him after he tried to commit suicide. The family never spoke up on this. The Wired journalist reached out to them and they said they just have no comment on the story. After Vance graduated from high school, he enrolled into the University of Louisiana. And here, in the computer lab in the school, he got to know a man that would become his roommate, this guy named Randall. And this roommate would describe him as an introvert. Not just an introvert, but it's not like he was an introvert by choice, in a way. He said it was more that he was depressed. He cut off his whole family. He just didn't hang out with anybody else, and he would get moodier and moodier as the years would progress. He remembered Wentz would play games sometimes for about 18 hours a day and just shut everybody else out. And another thing that he mentioned was that Wentz never really thought or spoke about going into the wilderness, even spending the time out in the wild, going camping at all. He actually said outside for Vance was between the car and the building, that he was barely even going out, so that this was never part of the plan, at least in his 20s when he knew him. According to Randall, Vance never graduated, but he had really great computer skills. He knew how to code better than most people, even without it. So he got a job at this e-commerce company called Shopper's Choice, and there he was recognized as one of the most talented engineers on the team. People said he wasn't really friendly, but also he would go to, like, Christmas party, you know, he would go to Thanksgiving parties and not look miserable. He would smile, he would be friendly enough, but it wasn't the guy that was going to, I don't know, show up 
dressed for Halloween. <laughs> Why? Where did you get that from? <laughs> I mean, you are not a person that will show up dressed for Halloween, so why do you expect it from him? Out of all the people that you have covered. Your commentary on this is so unnecessary. And also, what they said is that even with coding, it just seemed like you would find the most complicated way to go about it. Like, if there was a problem to be solved, he would just put on the headphones, listen to Temple of the Dog and Rage Against the Machine, and just solve the problems. And the more complex the problems, the more comfortable events would become. I would say, according to my research, in late 20s, early 30s, it's when everything kind of went downhill. It's where he started de-escalating. He started eating only once a day, often fast food, just like a pizza from Walmart or lasagna from this local place nearby. He would wear sort of all black, had long dark hair almost down to his waist. He looked different in most of the pictures that you can find of him online. Even then, by people who lived with him, by his roommates, he was kind of known to have been going through something in terms of his mental health issues, but he refused to take medication. He would say self-medication with drinking and chocolate was more appropriate for him, and he would go on what his roommates would call outages, where he would just lay on the bed for days and he would refuse food and all human contact. Listen, even if you told me he did this for 20 years, I still would not be able to rationalize it. I still would not be able to understand it. But it was a pattern. It happened before. It is something that he did to isolate from everybody. During this time, when he was in Baton Rouge, he actually had a relationship that lasted for about five years. But this relationship ended pretty badly. This Wired article said that when the relationship was over, the ex-girlfriend actually posted on Facebook, apartment 950 a month, bills 300 a month, standing up to the monster that beat you up emotionally and physically for five years, priceless. Once Vance would be identified, this woman's mom would be the one commenting on Facebook saying, that Vance was so abusive to her daughter that it changed her. Everybody that knew him in Louisiana said that nothing they have heard about him disappearing and then going hiking for over a year was surprising to them. The only surprising fact was that in the end he died. In 2013, Vance would move to New York and here is where he met a woman that is only identified in these sources as Kay. He met her in the online chat room. At the time, she was finishing college in upstate New York, but once the two of them met and the relationship involved, they decided to move into a flat in New York City and live together. She would describe, like, at first, he was all sweet and nice, but as soon as they moved in together, she started sort of picking up on certain red flags. Like, if something upset him, he would just stop talking to her completely. He worked remotely for Shopper's Choice, but then, after a year, he quit. He was leaving off the savings. And whenever she would ask him, like, you know, where we should go for a holiday, like, we should travel, he would respond that they don't need to go anywhere because they can easily look at pictures online. 
no nah, man, this is this is when you run for the hills. This is like when my dad had a chat with an acquaintance that he met that night, and it was already dry, you know, like nothing was happening. It was just like, I want to get out of this. And then he asked him, like, what music he listens to. And the man said he doesn't listen to music. And my dad just got the bill, paid it, and just was like, no, you know what? You know what? No. This is a freaking psychopathic behavior, like, run for the hills. This is the sign, you should leave the room right then and there. But, of course, they didn't really see the red flags until they started the mounting. The flags started the mounting once he started opening up about his previous relationships. He would actually describe to Kay how he treated these women, and he didn't see anything wrong in that. And then there were the points when he would lock her out of their apartment. And this is after she would get out of the shower without clothing. And it's just because they would start up an argument. And then he would just lock her out of the apartment naked. And she said this wasn't the only time. This didn't only happen once. In 2016, Kay was actually injured during the terrorist attack in New York. And due to that, she developed quite bad PTSD. And Vance hated that. Not just that he didn't have empathy, but every time she would ask for help, she said that he would leave her outside in the dark, knowing full well that this is what she feared, that she didn't like to be outside or to be alone because of her PTSD. That winter of 2016, Kay decides to finally move out. And in January 2017, Vance would write in the Slack channel that he used for scripts, I am mostly harmless for now. In mid-April, he would post his last message on the Slack channel and he would head into the woods. Eight months later, his landlord would open the door to the flat and would find unopened food, his passport, wallet and credit cards, all of the ideas that he left behind. When the Wired journalist reached out to Kay and spoke to her about, you know, how other people perceived him, like all of this crowdfunding that was done for him because he seemed so approachable, smiling, very nice to everybody that he would meet on the trail, she said that he was good at code-switching and hiding the person he was behind the doors. And also that they didn't know him for long enough. They weren't spending years with him to know how he handled the ups and downs. She also said it hurts knowing that Vance was capable of being this person with complete strangers, but when it came to actually nurturing his own relationship, he couldn't even be a decent human treating her or her body with any dignity. So, we have the reason. We have the why nobody was looking for him. His ex-girlfriend was scared of him. His family wasn't in touch because he cut them off. And his friends in Louisiana probably thought he was in one of his outage phases, as they would put it, or that he was just in New York living his life. Everybody in his life just assumed one day, once the outage is over, he would just show back up. Kay actually offered a pretty decent explanation as to why why did he commit suicide, rather. She said like she was aware as his other roommate about these outages, 
and that she knew that when he had to deal with anything, anything complicated, anything complex, anything that he wanted to avoid, he would just lie down and sleep. And she feels like that is what happened here. He just wanted to ignore his problems and sleep until they were gone. And then this Wired article turns really deep and insightful about finishing this article on the note of why did he go into the woods to begin with. And they concluded that we go outside because it helps take us inside of ourselves. The way I am going to conclude this is that, listen, listen to this, listen to this paragraph. If we are to trust people in his life, okay, even this gave up on me, if we are to trust people in his life, he hated who he was and took it out on others. So he just left because he hated the person he'd become. Boom. Mic drop. He just wanted to sleep on, on it, wake up, and maybe be a different person, even though he was starving and he definitely needed food. Like, doesn't your body go into fight-or-flight mode? Doesn't your body desperate? Like, you look for branches, you look for, like, leaves, you look for something to chew once you go into that stage of, like, hallucinations. I just refuse to believe that he just fell asleep to sleep through his problems and then just ended up dead. I just... It just doesn't make sense in my mind, because it has to happen for days. It has to happen for days. He's starving, just losing probably all of his senses, like, one by one, as he's getting into, like, these hallucinations and things with, you know, the lack of water and the lack of food. I just... What are your theories on this one? I guess my questions are, first of all, what stories do you believe? Do you believe all of the stories by his roommates, by his ex-girlfriend? Do you believe that this was who he was as a person? Because I think that is quite, like, an unsatisfactory ending to the story. Of course, you know, when you have internet sleuths, when you have people crowdfunding for somebody, you want the story to end with a win. You want them to identify this amazing man and make it all worth your while. And that's really not what happens in this story. Did I miss out on anything that you know about this story that indicated any foul play? Because maybe there is a potential for that, even though, I mean, in that case, somebody in the medical examination office, somebody conducting an autopsy on him must have lied, because that's one main thing that we can really refer to when it comes to the facts. And then finally, what are your theories? What are your opinions on this story? Like, why did he go into the woods? Why did he choose to die by starving himself? And just, why why did he live his life the way he did? Like, it's such an unsatisfying story. Once I actually, you know, wrap this all up into the freaking script, I was like, I don't think I like this one anymore. I liked it when it was weird. And as harsh as that sounds, when we still didn't know his identity. I like that better. And this is a sign to you, if you are an internet sleuth, to pay as much attention to missing posters of people of color and maybe put as much effort into that, yeah? How about that? How about you don't solve a mystery just because a guy in the pictures looks hot or whatever he does? 
because this might be the ending of that story, okay? Instead, uh -huh, focus on the age, you know? If it's a child, person of color, yeah, focus on that. Bring some resolutions to, like, a family looking for their missing child. I'm not saying don't solve mysteries like that. I'm just saying put equal effort across the board for every single case, because if you can freaking crowdfund something like this in about eight days, we, it means we can do better. It means we know how to do this. And it means just like put the same equal amount of pressure in other cases, because their resources just need the dollar, just need the money. And in doing so, you keep making this world a better place. One more thing at a time. Hasta la vista, motherfuckers. Hasta next Monday. Okay. Okay. Is it? Today is Friday. If you are watching this, I'm most probably, most probably, because I have taken a day off for it, <laughs> watching La Casa de Papel new season. Listen, don't tell my boss. If you are my boss listening to this, ignore this part completely. Just kidding. I'm the first person who would admit to my boss that I have done something like this. So, you know. Where was I? You were saying goodbye. Goodbye now. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>